lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show. And greetings. Happy Thursday. Thanks for tuning in here today, live and on demand on Blaze TV, radio and podcast. I am Steve Dace. Todd Erzin and Aaron McIntyre are here with me as well. If you'd like to join in on all the fun and frivolity today, 888-900-3393 is the number. That's 888-900-3393. Steve at stevedace.com is how you can email us. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. And don't forget, if you're looking for clips of this show that you can sample yourself and share with others, youtube.com slash Steve Dace. We are all about customer service here on today's show. All right. So first of all, let's let's talk about what's going to happen after the show with today's overtime. Trending number one in my Twitter feed in the world right now is hashtag pandemic. And well, actually, it's been replaced by Jason Whitlock just in the last five minutes. But when I came in here 30 minutes ago, hashtag pandemic documentary was the number one trending hashtag in the world, uh, according to my Twitter trends. And it is certainly the number one trending topic in my inbox. About 200 some odd of you have asked and have, or assumed I have seen this documentary that keeps being taken down on YouTube, which ultimately t- or typically means it's either really, really bad or it, it's really, really good. Now, I have not seen this. Todd, you've watched it. Yes, I have. Aaron, you've watched it twice. A couple times. All right. So here's what we're going to do. We have never done this before in the overtime today. I'm going to watch this documentary. It's about 25 minutes. I'm going to watch this in real time and react to it for the overtime today. And I'm going to do it because of the amount of you that have inundated my various inboxes that we just provided you access to, recommending that we do. All right, I'm, I'm kind of aware of what it's about, but not really all the specifics. And you guys haven't told me much about it other than, Todd, you told me you found it very in- interesting, very intriguing. Absolutely. And you, you, you did a little, I did ask you to do some work on the filmmaker who did this documentary. What's his angle? Aaron right? actually did more of on the okay. particular filmmaker. Yeah, okay. he's not some right winger. He's he's kind of weird, but he's. I mean, it's it's a legit production company that did this, uh, based and in they've North done documentaries on, on other weed topics and stuff like that. Okay, yeah. all right. So so based on your voluminous requests, I am going to watch this, but I'm going to watch it in real time in the overtime today. BlazeTV.com/slash Dace promo code Steve is how you can get access to the overtime if you're not yet a Blaze TV subscriber. And if you take advantage of subscribing to, the, to Blaze TV right now with blazetv.com slash days, promo code Steve, you'll get the least expensive uh, discount uh, and subscription rate we have ever offered here at Blaze TV. If you're already a subscriber to Blaze TV, just be patient. It will be posted for you later this afternoon. Now for today's show, if you're not asking me about this pandemic documentary, The other topic that is dominating my inbox at the moment has to do with reopening churches. Now, I am getting a slew of questions about this. I just want to reiterate a couple things. I have no authority, and that's because God is smart, okay? I have enough of my own issues to be given any kind of apostolic authority, right? You don't want me on that wall. And you definitely don't need me on that ball. I I am fine right where I'm at, which is being led and taught by others 
so that I am equipped for the platform that I was given. Okay? You're not the new Pope hat? I... Nice. Well played. And you get to make that joke. I don't. I'm, I'm a hater and a bigot if I do. Um, but, but not that that's untrue in some cases. Uh, if you're dumb, I do hate you. And I am bigoted against what you think. That is true. But, but because I'm getting this question a lot, for Theology Thursday this week, I'm going to run down some of the things I would be looking at with my own home church, or if a pastor just, that, that's a friend of mine, asked me what I thought, and I do have friends of mine that are pastors, right? So my, I kind of view my role is just a, a, a layman with a microphone, all right? I'm, I understand I'm probably, I'm not gonna give you the false humility because that's every bit as nauseating as arrogance, all right? I am aware of the fact I'm probably better informed and researched than the average layman. That's why I have a platform like this. I We know that, okay? Um, and so I'm gonna try to use some of that um, skill in addressing this topic. But this is not meant to be some kind of decree. This isn't the Council of Dort on on church reopenings, all right? It, but it is a topic that I'm getting a lot of frustration in my inbox and a lot of questions about. And so I, I just think, I, we, we kind of addressed it last week on Feedback Friday a little bit. I want to put together just kind of one, my one definitive take on this. And that way I can just, we can, we can put it out there on all the socials and then just share it with people and you can do with it what you want from there, right? Okay. Like if my own pastor called me, what, what, here, here's what I would tell him, or if friends of mine who are pastors called me, this is the opinion I would give. And I'm going to give it to you, and then you can do with it what you want. Is that okay? Yeah, I'm interested right. to see what you have to say. All right. In, product, in evangelicalism, this is like passive-aggressive um, magisterial input. <laughs> right? Like I have no authority, but I'm, but, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to provide uh, my own take on it. Nevertheless, you had me at passive aggressive. All right. Yes. All right. Also, three non political questions. Uh, Blaze TV contributor and new editor of the opinion section at Newsweek, Josh Hammer, will be joining us here at the bottom of the hour. But before we get to all of that, here's Aaron's rundown of what happened while we were locked down. What happened while we were locked down? Brought to you by a surprise. And a very high percentage comorbidities, which is what we've been talking about and which we understand. That's New York Governor Andrew Cuomo during yesterday's daily coronavirus news conference talking about hospitalizations for the disease in his state. This is a surprise. Overwhelmingly, the people were at home. Uh, where there's been a lot of speculation about this. A lot of people, again, had opinions. A lot of people have been uh, arguing uh, where they come from and where we should be focusing. But if you notice, 18% of the people came from nursing homes. Less than 1% came from jail or prison. 2% came from the homeless population. 2% from other congregate facilities. But 66% of the people were at home, uh, which is shocking to us. New York's stay-at-home order is set to expire in the middle of this month. President Trump had some tough words for China during a press gaggle in the Oval Office yesterday. This is worse than Pearl Harbor. This is worse than the World Trade Center. There's never been an attack like this. And it should have never happened. Could have been stopped at the source. Could have been stopped in China. It should have been stopped right at the source. 
and it wasn't. Another 3.2 million Americans filed for unemployment in the last week. That makes the total number of unemployed Americans about 33.5 million since the lockdowns began. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, your thoughts? You know, there's a lot of people saying, you know, call for a general strike, call for a general strike. The majority of Americans don't know what a general strike is. And so our responsibility is to talk about it, expand consciousness about it, and to actually create the the conditions in which working people can can generate and really exercise their own power, the power that they already have for themselves. Meanwhile, in Odessa, Texas, a SWAT team featuring an armored vehicle descended upon Big Daddy Zane's bar after the bar opened up against Texas guidelines. Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick says he'll pay the fine and take the place of imprisoned salon owner Shelley Luther after she was sentenced to seven days in jail for opening up her salon against Texas's guidelines for reopening businesses. Mike Rowe doesn't mince words telling Glenn Beck his thoughts about the lockdowns of the past seven weeks. I think most of the country is going to come through this with the realization that we're being treated like children and we're being. Oh. We're being fed platitudes, bromides, and bowls of warm milk by people who want us to look at them as parents. And when that lands, Mm -hmm. things will change. Riverside County, California Sheriff Chad Bianco says he will not and cannot enforce California's continued stay-at-home orders for his constituents and businesses. From the beginning, I told you that I would not be enforcing the stay-at-home order, partly because I trusted our residents' ability to do the right thing without the fear of being arrested. I knew that they could be trusted to act as responsible adults, and I was correct. As we continue, I will reinforce my position. Not only do we not have the resources to enforce unreasonable orders, I refuse to make criminals out of business owners, single moms, and otherwise healthy individuals for exercising their constitutional rights. Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Rebecca Bradley ripped Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers' continued stay-at-home orders calling them, quote, the very definition of tyranny. In other news, the tombstone of the hashtag MeToo movement was published in the opinion pages of the New York Times yesterday. Author and sex assault activist Linda Hirschman wrote an op-ed entitled, I Believe Tara Reid, I'm Voting for Joe Biden Anyway. Major League Baseball is reportedly finalizing a plan to return to play and is expected to release that plan within the week. The latest rumored proposal calls for a mid-June return to spring training with an early July start to the season with teams playing in their home ballparks. And finally, oral arguments via telephone at the Supreme Court are going flushingly. I'm going to be saying, hey, call your congressman and uh, change these laws that apply to banks. And what the FCC has said is that when the subject matter of the call ranges to the topic, then the call is transformed. And it's, it's yes. a call that would have been allowed and it's no longer allowed. And that's what happened while we were away. Metaphor alert. Yeah, That's today's metaphor alert.
Indeed. Aaron's Montage brought to you by Patriot Mobile. In addition to their generous support of Mercury One, Patriot Mobile has gone gone above and beyond to help Americans stay in touch with loved ones during this difficult time by lowering their prices even further. Right now, their U.S.-based team is standing by to design your customized family plan. Starting as low as $25, Patriot Mobile shares your values and will never charge you hidden fees. And unlike Big Mobile, they won't send your hard-earned money to Planned Parenthood or other leftist causes either. So you can get the same reliable nationwide service and support a company that shares your values, supports our Constitution, and puts people before profits. Switching is easy. Keep your phone number, bring your own phone, or even buy a new one. And right now, when you join their family of freedom-loving Americans, they'll waive your activation, plus send you a free gift with the offer code STEVE. So the cheapest rates ever. There's a family plan starting as low as $25 a month right now at Patriot Mobile. They'll waive the activation fee. And a free gift as well. Just using the offer code Steve when you call 972 Patriot, that's 972 Patriot, or you go to their website, patriotmobile.com slash Steve, patriotmobile.com slash Steve. Let's get to the montage. The, the governor of New York is shocked to learn that indoor transmission. An intrafamilial transmission of coronavirus is the primary way in which it has spread. If he'd been watching this show since early to mid-March, he would have known this. Because I told you this. I told you this. With information they all could have had. How many times have we brought up the University of Hong Kong study of SARS coronaviruses from 2011? Peer-reviewed, by the way, for you beautiful losers who suddenly think 42 or whatever it is and counting serology studies that all say the same thing. Anecdotal, Steve. Are all anecdotal unless you've had a chance to give your Inspector 12. (laughs) All right. This one was peer-reviewed. And you know what it found? Now, you know... I have cited this study how many times on this show in the last two months? How many times have I tweeted about it? SARS viruses don't like sunlight. They love fomites, indoor infected surfaces and inanimate objects. And they can survive in those environments even if the temperature is above 70 degrees up to five days if it's a dry climate controlled environment. Where has virtually every New Yorker been sentenced to for the last month and a half? A dry, climate-controlled environment. What are America's nursing homes? Dry, climate-controlled environments. What are America's meatpacking plants? Dry, climate-controlled environments. What are America's jails? Dry climate-controlled environments. Folks, there's no magic bullet here. And there never was one. This science was out there the entire time. Ask Sweden. They just chose not to follow it. Now, there's two possibilities. There's probably truth in both of them. One is they panicked, thinking that this was something new, different, and they weren't sure what to do. And the models told them 2 million people were going to die. I'm sure there's a part of others having, having friends of mine that served in Congress during the TARP meltdown. 
I, I, I know I, I, I've witnessed through them firsthand what that level of panic at the elite levels of government can produce. So I absolutely think that had maybe even a majority of, of why we did what we did. But there's at least a sizable plurality or at least a significant minority of the reasons why we did this is because it was never about science at all. It was about power and control. So I, I can, I can, hey, mercy triumphs over judgment. It says in the word and it does it on this show too. We just probably need to be better at it, frankly. Um, but I'll provide mercy to those who made a poor judgment in March. I'm sure you would too. Most Americans would to some I would. extent, right? I have to. What's the date today though? May 7th. This data has been out here the entire time. If they're not following it now, then they're either just really bad at this or they're really good at it, if you know what I'm saying. Who was it that told you? Every peer-reviewed study of coronavirus showed outdoor transmission was not a major factor. Who told you that? This show did. Who told you that over 80% of the transmissions in several studies in Germany, South Korea, China, and others, Japan, found that the major that 80% uh, or, or all of the studies found that 80% of the transmissions were indoors and intrafamilial family members passing it to themselves. What do you have a lot of in Spain and Italy? Multi-generational family dwellings like the old world. You have a lot of that in that part of the world. Where are the two highest? Well, until this week, now that the UK has reached that number, but where were the two highest rates of death by total population in the West for coronavirus all along? Italy and Spain. What is the most densely populated city in America? New York City. Well, Steve, the businesses have been closed down, but okay, where did all those people go? It's 16 million people just didn't disappear. They weren't raptured. So just because they're not walking down Park Avenue... Or going to Yankee Stadium or heading to the Bronx Zoo. They're still all somewhere. And where are they all at, guys? Indoors, in dry, climate controlled environments. What do you see a lot of in New York City as well? High Hispanic population, Chinatown. These are ethnic populations that still have a lot of old world habits. And when I say old world, we just mean, you know, the way that the world, the way that human civilizations in the West lived prior to industrialization, post-World War I. So a lot of people living in multi-generational dwellings, just passing it back and forth to each other. This is breaking news to the man that is supposedly the Democratic Party's shining knight to save them from Joe Biden's dementia this year. And yet, if you were part of this audience... You've known this for literally months. And the governor of New York is just gobsmacked. And despite that, he still has like a 73% approval rating amongst his own citizens. I know. Okay. I know. You just, you, you were made to be ruled. Yes. You, you were, were made to be ruled. That warm milk that yep. um, Mike Rowe was talking about. Well done by Texas Lieutenant Governor. 
Dan Patrick, that's how we do. That's what we do. We stand up and step up when we see an injustice like that. Uh, it's still 36 hours too late for Governor Abbott to be issuing, issuing the pardon that this woman deserves. Now, an update on this story. Uh, Shelley Luther has been, is be, the Texas Supreme Court has commanded her, ordered her to be released from, uh, from jail while they are considering her petition. Okay. And did you see uh, Greg Abbott this morning actually retroactively uh, made a ruling, uh, changed an executive order uh, to where uh, people can't be thrown in jail for, for violating these orders, made it retroactive back to April 2nd. So okay. there's that too. All right. So, okay. I, I mean, I, I can see what he's doing there. He, he doesn't want to, he's trying to maintain the some level of enforcement or credibility of his emergency order while at the same time saying that it's ultimately really not going to be enforced. Right. Paper tiger. Yeah. Uh, so it's on the books, but it's, it's it. He's essentially done a version of what sanctuary cities have done. Yeah. The immigration laws are on the books, but we're really not going to enforce them. I mean, you can threaten tickets and levies and things of that nature, but ultimate, the ultimate punishment is of course, incarceration. So if you're going to take that off the table, then these are largely unenforceable. And that's what the sheriff in Riverside, California is telling you. These things are unenforceable. And when we say unenforceable, here's what we mean by that. They can only be enforced capriciously, subjectively. They can only be enforced that way. There's no possible way that they can be, be, be enforced judiciously. Because you can't you simply can't, without declaring martial law, hold that many people hostage at one time. You can't do it. So it can only happen. That's when we say things like, hey, they can bust one tattoo parlor, but they can't bust 25 of them, right? And why can't they bust 25 of them? Because they don't have the resources to do that. They're not a military. That law officer in Aaron's montage said, said as much. Said as much, yeah. So these are the kinds of laws that can only be done capriciously, um, and, and subjectively like traffic laws. Now, the difference with traffic laws is you may not like them. They may be inconvenient, but you don't have a right to drive a car somewhere. Okay. So the difference here is this is, this is imposing unenforceable laws though, that go directly against what you do have rights to do. You do have a right to pursue happiness. You do have a right to your conscience. You do have a right to religious expression. You do have a right to protest through free speech and peaceably assemble. You have these rights. So therefore, if you're instituting laws that go against those rights, they can only be tyrannical because they cannot, they're not really enforceable without government full-throated putting its jackboot on your throat. And if this could happen in Texas, it could happen virtually anywhere. And the reason why is because if we have learned one truth, man, if anything we have preached on this show over the last few years has been proven true in the last two months, it's this. We are not a nation of laws and we never have been. We're a nation of political will and we always will be. You're willing, when I say you're, I mean 
the general population is willing to be subjected to this, which is why it goes on. Now, those numbers are, have greatly dwindled from where they were at the end of March. We're seeing that all over the country. And that's why you're seeing governors now race out with even ridiculous reopening plans, like what Oregon announced yesterday. Your county has to be, has to have COVID cases worse than the, or less than the flu line to reopen. That's just because they don't want you later on to use the talking point. That is true. The talking point is that unless you're elderly and in a nursing home, this is a really bad flu. That, that's really what the numbers are going to show. And then what they're going to show is if you're elderly and in a nursing home, it's one of the worst contagions we've ever had in American history. That's what it's going to show. It is one of the worst contagions than, that we've ever had in American history. It just isn't unless you're elderly and in a nursing home. If you're anybody else, it's a really bad flu. Doesn't mean it couldn't be lethal. It has been for, other, for people in those other demographics. Doesn't mean it can't force hospitalizations. It has for thousands of people in those other demographics. But, but when we're not talking about, again, from day one, we've pointed this distinction out. It's not about the pathology of the virus. It's about the psychology of the public policy. All right. It's amazing, too. Every, every day this goes further, the, the more the, all the things we said at the very beginning, all are confirmed and come back around as right again. So from a public policy standpoint, there is no justification for this. None. There's zero. There's no good arguments for it. That's why all the arguments are easily refuted and bad and gross and dumb. There's no good arguments for it. I mean, Daniel Horowitz was on here yesterday talking about the numbers with the nursing homes. He's tweeting even more updated stats out there this morning. I mean, what's going on there is a national tragedy. A national tragedy. And the best, best case scenario is, in order to lock you and I down, they abandoned those people. That's the best case scenario. Could be other things. Could be they're just going to pad their stats one way or another. One way or another, they're going to get to 100,000 deaths. So they can then, later on, justify why they did this. See, we told you this was going to happen, even if we did it. That's why it would have been even worse. Would have been even worse. And then there's other possibilities for why this is happening. I don't even frankly want to consider because those take you to a, we've been in a couple of dark places on this show in the last couple of months. Those take you to other places. I'm not ready to go to yet, but those options are possible. Given, given, I mean, we can now, we can, you know, we, we, we ran down the thread for you yesterday of, of the, of the, I mean, the, the fantasy, the dream team, of nocturnal emission leftist fever dreams issues. We can now add red meat shortage because we know they hate that. And now CDC is recommending mail-in voting. Hey, 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 over at Mr. Redfield and folks over at the CDC, can you maybe actually find out what in the Sam Hill is happening with America's single sector pandemic? Because the only pandemic happening in America right now is in our nursing homes everywhere. Our nursing, home, our nursing homes everywhere are having a single sector pandemic. Rest of America's not. Could you maybe spend your time and energy into that rather than pontificating on, the, on, on, on America's voting practices? Stay in your lane, bro. Except this, this hasn't been about stay in your lane. For them, it's been about stay in your lane for you, that's what it's been about. 
Maybe it was about this much about science and public health. And then it was this many about everything else. And maybe in the middle of March, it was this much about science and public health and this much about everything else. But as the days go on, the science and public health piece of the pie shrink all the more. And the everything else looms larger and larger and larger. But you know this, which is why we're seeing civil unrest, which is why people are just defying these shelter in places by their own actions. You know this. And they know it too. Just remember what we told you last week. The lies will get more dishonest. The dumbassery will get dumber. The petty tyranny will get pettier. The gross panic porn will be grosser here in this final phase of the operation. And I'm using that word on purpose. On purpose. Any quick thoughts, gentlemen? Keep doing what you're doing. Civil unrest is good. While the CDC and other government technocrats determine public policy via Ouija board, you should be getting outside, getting some vitamin D, and living your life to the best of your ability as much as you can right now. And we're seeing that, as Steve just noted, all over the place. That's very good. Our good friend Josh Hammer is going to be joining us here. We're going to find out his thoughts of what's going on in his native state of Texas with Shelley Luther. And whether or not these shelter in places, how enforceable are they? We'll get into that and more in a moment. Stay tuned. Let's get to it and welcome back. Good friend of the program, Blaze TV contributor, and now he is running the op-ed page over at Newsweek. Our good buddy, Josh Hammer. Good to see you, Josh. How are you? Always good to see you, Steve. Hope all's well. So I have done the whole, hey, we're going to bring you in and be our token conservative thing. I've done that. I did it at Politico, Business Insider, USA Today, a couple different places. All right. Um, And uh, MSNBC. I've done it at a few places. Okay. Um, but I've never been offered the chance of, Hey, we're going to actually let you run the opinion section here. Okay. How in the world did you manage to swing that? How did you get them to give you that opportunity? You know, Steve, I can't quite give away all of my little secrets, but, <laughs> but, um, but what, I, what I can tell you is that Newsweek is aggressively seeking to retool itself. They have um, very young, entrepreneurial, innovative, um, forward-thinking, for lack of a better term, management. They realize that they've made a lot of errors over the past decade in particular after the Washington Post sold the publication around 2010, 2011. Um, They've shown an inability in the past to um, anticipate how a headline or an article plays beyond the world of left-wing clickbait. And they recognize that the opinion section is currently constituted, even though we have a number of high-profile conservative contributors, people like Nigel Farage, Newt Gingrich, Charlie Kirk, all contribute regularly. The actual ratio is dramatically skewed. And, you know, I think someone like myself and, you know, I don't want to speak for me, but I, I think most people who know me know that I'm I have pretty solid conservative bona fides. I don't think most people would question that. I think me sliding into that role will hopefully provide cover for conservatives to understand this is a friendly place for them to publish. And I view my mission there fundamentally 
Um, well, it's a multifold mission, but in terms of the conservative space, what I'm trying to do is give a mainstream platform voice to genuinely conservative perspectives. That those are not necessarily just like the weak Evan McMullen kind of like never Trump perspectives. I'm mm-hmm. talking about substantive, meaty, conservative perspectives. And that's what I'm trying to do. Let me say this too, though, Josh. And I'm guessing when the people on the other side of the aisle, if you do your job well, which I assume you will, we'll, we'll say the same thing about you. It was a frustrating experience at times dealing with editors and, and producers at those other entities I just mentioned being kind of one of the token conservatives around there. But I will say this, it made me demonstrably better at what I do. It, it, it forced me... To, I could not. I couldn't get away with any kind of you know slop at the pool table. I had to call my shot. You know what I'm saying? I mean, if I just banked a shot in, I better call it. Otherwise, it wasn't going to get printed, or I couldn't say it on the air. And so it it really did help me to firm up my own ability to make my own arguments. So it's benefited. To, I think the audience we have now that experience, and and that's what you know a real debate is supposed to do. Um, but it's just unfortunate that much of our media in this country really isn't interested in a real debate. They're just interested in prom- promulgating whatever today's narrative happens to be. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And one of the one of the platforms in Newsweek that I'm overseeing is literally called The Debate. It's a platform that we just launched in January, um, so slightly before I arrived on the scene. But it's, a, it's, a, it's at the top of our opinion page. It's called The Debate, and it's exactly what it sounds like. We pick a big issue of the day. We frame it pro-con, right perspective, left perspective. And one of my big tasks is overseeing that entire project. So I'm framing the debates, I'm getting the contributors, we're picking, I'm picking the topics, um, and I'm kind of fleshing out the paradigm and the parameters within which that, that debate will happen. So, you know, look, I mean, I couldn't agree with everything that you just said more, Steve, obviously. Um, you know, I, I, th- I think that's when I was in law school, right? I, 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 I practice law on the side nowadays. I'm not like a full-time lawyer, obviously. But one thing that law school was so good for for me, and I've talked with Many conservative law students and lawyers feel the same way. You're obviously, even at a fairly historically right of center friendly law school like the one I went to, you're obviously inundated by leftism day in and day out. You have lefty law students, you have lefty professors, and you really do learn how to refine and hone your arguments. And you also, and this is the key point, I think, you learn to understand the other side. Mm -hmm. You understand how they think, the arguments they make. And, um, you know, look, with this Newsweek platform, I'm hoping to get conservatives up in the mainstream. I hope the left will better refine their arguments. Whether that will happen, obviously, we'll see. (laughs) Um, But I can can certainly try, and that's what I'm going to do. All right, let's get to some news. I want to throw some numbers at you. This is as of last night, Josh. Absolute latest data as of last night. Not yet updated today. These are coronavirus deaths by percentage of total population. And the reason why we're looking at it from that standpoint is because we're looking at it from a public policy standpoint. You and I are fairly smart dudes. You're probably smarter than me, but neither one of us are physicians. So we're not here to study the pathology of the virus. We're here to talk about the public policy that we're doing as a result. All right. So when you look at the percentage of total population, coronavirus death, Spain and the UK are number one on that list at 0.05%. Italy is next, and France is caught up to them at 0.04%, meaning 0.05 and 0.04% of the total population has perished as a result of coronavirus. Sweden is sitting at 0.03% right now, and the United States is at 0.02%. Only one country on that list did not issue a national quarantine, and that is Sweden. And you'll recall their initial numbers, they were going to be at 8, 9, 10% uh, of a case fatality rate. 
right? They had an initial massive spike, but now we have seen a dramatic leveling off of their numbers, which is, I don't think, a coincidence why they've been launched down the memory hole. Uh, the, the same Sweden that our leftist friends have wanted America to be more like for 20 years suddenly wrecked them, barely knew them, Josh. So what do those numbers tell you? I mean, those numbers say it all, Steve. Um, and you've been on this beat for a long time. I, I, I was kind of in the murky agnostic middle for a little while once this thing got started. But, you know, over the past three, four weeks or so, I've, I, I've basically gotten to where you are, which is historians will not judge well what we as United States of America have done to our economy and frankly to our people. Um, Lyman Stone, who um, I actually don't know what his professional affiliation is, but he's a really smart guy. Um, he might be at AEI, but in any event, he, he's had an essay series at the Public Discourse website, really kind of breaking down the data, going country by country, and just showing that these lockdown, full lockdown policies simply do not work. And there are some things that historically do work. Um, Lyman has argued that closing schools, targeted quarantines of the elderly and you know the immunocompromised and the vulnerable some small ball measures like that have worked but the full lockdown the full shutting down you know mom and pop bakeries cookie shops flower shops whatever there is just no evidence whatsoever that that substantially improves societal outcomes relative to those more minor policies and we're going to look back on this and what we have done to ourselves um on the people who have lost their jobs their life savings their mm -hmm. retirements <laughs> We are not going to look back on this fondly. Historians are going to judge uh, both federal and state policy actors, I think, rather unkindly. It, it, it's just unfortunate. Aren't you looking forward to the 2022 midterms when everybody running in both parties runs on the platform of, I was against these all along, and it's literally one of the stupidest ideas in American history. Aren't you looking forward to that one? That election cycle is going to be, that election cycle will be a doozy, won't it, Josh? Yeah, God. Um, you know, look, it's not just for the president to figure this out, though. And that, that's why it's so frustrating. I mean, the, I'm going to file a column later today. It, it's time for President Trump to return to his voters, okay? It's time for him to once again stand with, with the people who elected him in 2016. The, one thing that this crisis has shown beyond a shadow of a doubt, it could never be more starkly obvious, is this absurd and horrible, frankly, divide between the blue checkmark Twitterati, the bi-coastal LA, yep. New York elites, and the people who are actually in the middle who are losing their freaking jobs and their life savings. And Trump needs to stand with the people who elected him. It's not too late, but we're, we're getting dicey. We're, we're into dicey territory here, especially with the polling that's coming out. Tell me, Josh, I asked a, one of my best friends, Congressman Shiproy, this question yesterday. I said, hey, you're, get, you, you're, you're getting briefings I'm not getting. You know, mm -hmm. you know, people like myself and Daniel Horowitz and Jordan Schachtel and others that have been researching this and Sean Davis, we can be ace, you know, layman researchers, but, mm -hmm. but our research is only as good as the quality of the data that we can get, that we are privy to. Right. All right. So you're in, I mean, are you getting some data that shows why we're doing this? I don't see because I, I can't come up with a legit reason other than I'm, I just want to win the election. Or I like the I like the authoritarian uh, power I have. I can't come up with a single public health reason why we are continuing to do this. And he told us on our show just the other day, no, we're not getting any extra data. Um, I, I talked to our, our good friend Daniel Horowitz talked to somebody close to the White House yesterday. I told him, no, we're, we're not we're not really getting any different data than what you guys are you know writing at places like the Blaze or you know with Josh Hammer at Newsweek. So. Since since you, part of your new perch is going to be looking at arguments at the other side too, 
Is there some argument? And I'm being sincere when I say this. Okay, it, it, is this? I'm not trolling you. Am I missing? What am I missing? What is this data point? Because this to me seems like a slam dunk. Like you know, like the apple just fell on Newton's head. What is it? Like I, 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 I can't, I can't come up with another argument for this other than virtue signaling. And I'm always preaching to my audience, Josh. Hey, don't straw man your opponent until they reveal themselves as a straw man. That's a great way to set yourself up to lose the debate, right? But I'm at the point now that I just think the whole thing is a house of cards. So tell me what I'm missing. What's the? Is there a data point that troubles you that somebody like me needs to take a, a, another look at? So, you know, I was, I was going to mention what you said about Danielle with the White House yesterday. Jordan Schachtel told me the same thing. And that is that's just so disquieting. I mean, that just should be a pause for concern for every sober person that the White House is just admitting that they're not going off any kind of better data than, you know, you and I at our like our, you know, in, in our boxer shorts on our couch or mm-hmm. kind of aggregating for ourselves. Um, mm-hmm. that, that is wild, wild stuff. Um, so there's a couple things here that just come immediately to mind. The, the problem all along with these lethality rates, the statistics have obviously only been as good as the testing operations, and there's always been all along a huge denominator problem. So I, I'm not going to say like that all the stats are useless, but I've been operating under a basic presumption since day one that these statistics overall are just not going to help us a whole lot. And my opinion on that, by the way, has not changed. Um, I, I mean, I, I guess credit that we're, that, that we're ramping up testing. That's probably on net obviously a good thing. But to, to this day, we simply do not have anything remotely resembling reliable statistics. But the more important point, I said the same thing on our Blaze TV colleague Sarah Gonzalez's podcast yesterday, is that if you go back to when these lockdown draconian policies started, there was literally one metric and only one metric that we the people were told to care about. And that was hospital capacity. Mm-hmm. We were worried about overloading the hospitals. That was the only data that anyone in America was told to be concerned with. And we were not told that we had to be locked down for 18 months, like Gavin Newsom is talking about, waiting for a vaccine. That is crazy. That was never the goal. The goalpost shifting, the Overton window shifting is from the other side in particular, is just utterly absurd. Now, to, your, to, to actually kind of get into your question, are you missing anything? I think the short answer is probably not. There are some anecdotal stories I mean, that I've seen in, in, in the Wall Street Journal over the past few weeks. The, the situation in New York obviously is a bit different than the rest of the country, but that, gets, that just gets back to federalism, Steve, okay? I mean, like, there is no reason whatsoever um, why the New York City's response, and uh, look, I have a million things to say about Bill de Blasio, obviously, but there's no reason whatsoever why New York City's response has to be the same as Oklahoma's response. And um, a lot of these states where Trump's voters are, are unfortunately feeling the repercussions of this coastal policy, this uh, this Fauci Burks white coat medical cartel that is imposing their their power grabs, frankly, upon the people who elected Trump. And he needs to stand up. He really, really, really needs to quit this kind of Janus-faced, two-faced operation where on the one hand, he's rhetorically signaling to his people over Twitter, but on the other hand, is delegating authority to people that he instinctually knows should not be running the country. And he's, mm-hmm. we need to get his act together quickly because he really, I think, is increasingly in dire shape if he does not do so. That's very well said. Before we let you go, did you, were you going to add something on that, Todd? No, no. Okay. Before we let you go, I got to ask you about Shelley Luther down there in your home state, but I want to take a broader view of it. To me, what the judge in that case said the other day, that your individual liberty is not permitted to conflict with what the state deems appropriate or proper. 
that to me is a worldview. And I mean, I mean, this is your wheelhouse now, legal theory, originalism, et cetera. But that to me is a worldview that is not reconcilable with a belief in our founding documents. Like you can't share a country with that view. That's what King George III was asserting. Okay. That, that actually he can impose on your liberty if he deems it proper. Right. And that's not to say that there aren't emergency circumstances, but you got to have better data than, well, look, it's happened in a few New York City hospitals. And so you in Texas can't have a salon. You got to have better data. You know, like I got to see like a mushroom cloud or something, you know, dramatic uh, that that is that is that that is far beyond just the philosophical premise that was asserted by that judge, because I really think it gets to the heart of the worldview divide divide in the country. I got about two minutes. What are your thoughts on that? So the reality is that there actually has there's no historical analog for what's going on in America right now. We have had targeted quarantines, particularly for ships that have docked at ports with ill passengers and things of that nature. There, but and we've fought pandemics. Obviously, the Spanish flu, obviously being the most high profile example from the past um, you know 105 years or however long it's been. But there's no historical analog for these systemic statewide, countywide lockdown policies all across the country. We simply have never done this. Um, Daniel Horowitz made this point uh, in a column a few weeks ago. And, you know, as a matter of constitutional structure, Steve, as you and I both know, the federal government is a a government of strictly enumerated powers. But as Madison says in Federalist 45, the state government's power are essentially indefinite. And they do have broad police powers, but we've never tested it at this level. There is no precedent for this. We quite, as a legal matter, we are in uncharted waters. Now, another interesting element going on here is actually within the state level, the legal play between the state and the county or municipality. So I just saw on Twitter, like maybe an hour before I hopped on with y'all, my governor here, Greg Abbott, basically, I, I don't remember the exact phrasing of the tweet, but he basically said that he will overrule state and municipal orders that will imprison people like Luther here in Dallas. And he has the ability to do that because it's actually the states that are sovereign. It's not the localities. It's not Dallas County where I live. It's the state of Texas that is sovereign. And the governor has the ability to do that. And I hope that uh, governors across the country who are liberty minded, who believe in something remotely approximating the natural rights that Jefferson wrote about in the Declaration of Independence will follow his lead and do the same thing. Great stuff, brother. Good to see you as always. All right. Take care. You too, man. All right. That's Josh Hammer, newly minted uh, Grand Poobah of the uh, opinion section over at Newsweek and Blaze TV. Contributor, your thoughts on that conversation with Josh. Stop. Oh, I can go any number of directions, but just from a journalism perspective, if he does Newsweek right, it is ultimately going to be uh, a, a cause for, for reforming all of modern journalism. What he's doing is what I suggested back when I was at the Register uh, many times to the editor-in-chief. I said, if you do this, I promise you, you'll have a better product and you'll make more money. They just won't, but he has an opportunity to do it at a level I could have only dreamed of. Yeah, I want to see real debate, right? Let yeah. Me, let, let's let both sides, let's just have a real debate. Yep. Bring it out into the open. We have so little of that. Let's have a real debate. All right, let's have a discussion. Church reopenings. Theology Thursday is going to tackle that topic when we come back. (music) 
We are back with Hour 2, live and on demand here on Blaze TV, radio and podcast. Steve Dace with Todd Erzin and Aaron McIntyre. 888-900-3393 is the number. That's 888-900-3393. Steve at stevedace.com is how you can email the program. D-E-A-C-E is how to spell the last name. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. If you're looking for for clips of the show that you can sample or share, youtube.com slash Steve Dace. And then finally, if you are a podcast listener, if you wouldn't mind giving us a five-star review, if you've yet to do so, we could use all of those. We could get thousands of you have done this already. Thank you to each and every one of you who have. If you've not yet, though, what are you waiting for? Just wherever you podcast from, keep those five-star reviews coming. They definitely help the show to grow. Thank you in advance for that. 888-900-3393 is the number. Coming up at the bottom of the hour, three non-political questions. But now it is time for Theology Thursday, and we're going to address a topic that I have been inundated with in my inbox this week, as more and more states and communities across the country are opening. It has to do with church openings. It's been a subject of frustration for many of you, questions for others of you. How far should I push my church, et cetera, to reopen? They seem hesitant, et cetera. Before I I run down my personal thoughts on this, because that's what they are, and I'm going to do my best to share them, I think, within the framework of a biblical worldview and, and church history, not to mention common sense. Okay, but they're my thoughts. I have no authority whatsoever in the church because God is smart, all right? Um, I'm fine right where I'm at, which is using what those who were given authority in the church have taught people like me to then go out and influence the world around me with platforms like this. That's what I do. I'm an influencer. I'm not an apostle. I'm not a church leader. I, I'm not an elder. Um, I'm not any of those things, okay? I'm just an influencer that was influenced by a biblical worldview, and I now use that to influence others. However, because this is also one of the larger platforms in the country, hosted by somebody who is open about his biblical worldview, it's only natural that we would get questions about it. So I am framing this as if my own pastor asked me or friends of mine who are pastors, and I do have several friends of mine who are, both here and I went around the country. If they asked me, what do I think? This would be what I would tell them for them to take it under advisement. And that's it. And then we'll discuss after I go through this, okay? Here's the first principle that needs to be dealt with. The assertion that Romans 13 means do everything government tells you is false. Now, this is a reference to the book of Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 8, where Paul is giving a framework for, you know, living in a civic environment as a Christian in the first century. And it's not just his own apostolic calling that makes him uniquely qualified to address this, but the fact that he's also a Roman citizen. And I would imagine there were very few Jews and even fewer Christians in the first century who had Roman citizenship. So any form of, of civil, civil liberties whatsoever. So he's uniquely qualified, not just because of the calling on his life, but the, the, the practicality of the life that he lives. He's been living a dual citizenship all this time already. 
He was living a dual citizenship as a high-ranking member of the Sanhedrin within the, the Jewish proconsul, and then ultimately, as, or as well, as a Roman citizen. So he already understood with the, with the dual citizenship of his, of his religious calling, you know, what, what that entailed in a, as a somewhat free person. Um, now it's just evolving. Not his civic liberties. He's still a Roman citizen. It's just his religious understanding is the part of it that's evolving. So he's already been doing this. And it do, he does not say to do whatever the state does. In fact, there's a line at the end there in verse 8. Give honor to those whom honor is due. How do we know what that meant? Well, we know what it meant by how the person that wrote those words lived them out. And Paul's life was ended because he refused to give Nero honor he wasn't due that he demanded. So he was beheaded. If Paul meant we just do whatever government says, no matter what, he would have been in Nero's good graces instead of house imprisonment in Rome and then ultimately beheaded. It's not what it meant. Because the authority on earth is instituted by God. So therefore you obey the system as if you are obeying God. If the system no longer wants to obey God and says, give your kids crack cocaine, that's our new order. Should we just start handing out crack cocaine in the youth ministry because the state said so? Is that what we should do? Romans 13, give the kids crack cocaine in the youth ministry. Of course not. All right. I'm using an absurd illustration to point out the absurdity of this notion that several of you have told me you have heard from your pastors that Romans 13 says we have to do what the government says. No. Romans 13 says we have to do what God says. And the government is to do what God says. It is his avenging angel against unrighteousness. But then what happens when the state says, eh, we're going to put down that sword or we're going to wield it at righteousness instead? Do we follow men or follow God? Well, it's a pretty common refrain throughout all of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. Believers are to obey God and not man. So it doesn't mean you do whatever government says. Anybody telling you that, that's false. That's the first point I think needs to be established. Next, furthermore, in our country, we are the rulers. We the people give our direct consent to who rules in our place as proxies or representatives, not over us. They do not rule over us. This is key. They rule in our place. That's what it means to live in a representative republic. We elect people who represent our interests. They don't rule over us. They rule in our place. Virtually every constitution of every state in this union has some statement that says the ultimate power resides in the people. The Constitution of these United States opens with the phrase, we the people in order to form a more perfect union. 
The people are sovereign here, not another sovereign. We don't have rulers here. We are the rulers. We don't have to automatically submit. <clears throat> the government submits to us. We wrote a constitution that limits the jurisdictional authority of the government, not the governed, in order to expand the liberty of the governed. That's what government by the consent of the, the governed means. That's what it means. So <clears throat> a, a, any sort of notion that historically how Christians have lived in monarchies or in um, oligarchies or under some foreign form of invasion, none of that applies here. None of it does. This is a unique experiment in human history. It, it reset the course of human history, in fact. So none of, none of those precedents in church history apply here. None of them do. Because this is a new precedent. And the new precedent here is, in a way, just as Christ gave his followers a new covenant, a new testament, well, a country founded largely with inspiration of the Christian worldview, beginning with the, uh, the Mayflower Compact, offered up a new civic covenant. The people are sovereign, not the political class. And the political class serves at the bequest and the consent of the people. Paul wasn't voting on Roman, for Roman emperor in the first century. You are voting for president. Situations just aren't analogous. And your pastor is a citizen. He's a sovereign. Your priest is a citizen. He's a sovereign. He rules here. Not a bureaucrat. Next point. Just as Paul used all of his civil liberties as a Roman citizen in the first century, we are free as Christians to use all of our civil liberties in the 21st century. For example, one of them is we have a right to protest. See the First Amendment. You have a right to do that. Paul doesn't shy away from his civil liberties at all. <clears throat> when he's falsely accused, he cites his civil liberties as a Roman citizen. When he wants a trial, he cites his civil liberties as a Roman citizen. Why was he called to travel to the Gentile world with the gospel? Well, it's probably pretty likely the list of, of believers who had both religious credibility within the Jewish community. Because remember, as we've told you many times over the years, initially Christianity is a uniquely Jewish argument. Is Jesus Messiah or not? That's the whole argument. And it's Jews arguing with Jews about that. So if you were looking for somebody who had the credibility to take that argument to every synagogue in the empire, but then also when he's done there, go down the street and talk to the, uh, the Gentile pagans, he's about, he might've been it. He might've been the only one that had both that level of elite religious credibility with Roman citizenship. And if he wasn't the only one, it's a really short list. And he uses all of those civil liberties. That's where he got the freedom to travel the empire. Why was Saul of Tarsus given the papers to go and hunt down the Christians in Antioch? Why was he on the road to Damascus? 
probably a lot of other members of the Jewish council could not just hop on a donkey and go wherever they wanted outside of Judea. They weren't Roman citizens. Paul could. Well, Saul then. So from his freedom of movement to proto-versions of, <clears throat> pardon me, proto-versions of habeas corpus, Paul never hesitates at any point in his ministry when we meet him as Saul and then when ultimately he leaves this world without a head as Paul. There's never a point where he is not deploying his civil liberties within the cause of his religious expression. Never a point. Does it the whole time. You're free to do the same. And your civil liberties allow you to speak out, speak against, protest, defend yourself, arm yourself. You're free to do the exact same thing. Well, Paul didn't do some of those things. He well, maybe he wouldn't have done them. We don't know. But we don't know that he wouldn't either. <clears throat> I mean, he, he couldn't. He couldn't do those things. It, it's just as reasonable to assume that the guy who used all of his civil liberty, liberties would have used all the ones that he didn't have if he had them too, as it is to think that he might have thought, I don't, you know, I've got another battle to wage, another war to fight. This isn't my fight. That could have been his position. Elsewhere in the scriptures, he says things like, you know, um, cultural customs, local traditions, just, you know, new moon festivals, those things aren't my, aren't my fight. So I have no position on those things. It is possible he would have done that if he had those liberties. We'll never know. But it's also possible he would have exercised them because he did exercise all of the liberties that he had. And you should do the same. Next. If your church is staying closed merely because this, the state told it to, I don't believe that's biblical. How do you know you can trust the state? Why are you just assuming its motivation in keeping you closed <clears throat> is not public health, but your actual message? That doesn't mean that that's, that is what's happening. But why would you assume that that's not a factor at all? Why would you assume that? It's kind of funny. Here's the only reason you wouldn't assume that. You wouldn't assume that because, well, this is America, founded on and inspired by Christian principles. Really? Um, <laughs> that is the exact sentiment that if you're not fully utilizing your civil liberties, you claim you're you're against. You're contradicting yourself. So which is it? I'm not going to use my civil liberties, but I am just going to trust everything the state says? Those, those views aren't reconcilable. So maybe you just haven't thought it through or it's a cop-out. I don't know the answer. But doesn't mean, by the way, the state is wrong that you should not open your church. It's not safe. That doesn't mean that it's wrong. That's not what I said. It's not what I said. What I said was, assuming the state has your best interest at heart, I don't believe that's biblical. And it certainly doesn't line up with church history. And we'll see what that looks like going forward here. If your church is opening up, 
without truly identifying if it can tend to its flock given the current pandemic, that's your ego talking and not the Holy Spirit. You are essentially emulating Peter. Lord, nothing will ever happen to you. Get thee behind me, Satan. That's your ego talking. That's your ego talking. That's not the Holy Spirit. And don't think that you won't see egotism in the pulpit, just like we see at times cowardice and gutlessness at the same time. Because men are in the pulpit and men struggle with both of those things. We are passive aggressive fight and flight by nature as sons of Adam. And it, the hope is when we're given a pulpit that we've spiritually matured, that we have tamed those tendencies. But just because we may or may not have, just because we may have tamed them doesn't mean we've cured them. They're still there. It is wise to consider how your community will react to your ministry reopening as it relates to the credibility of your witness. But also, you cannot be a slave to public opinion either. Don't, this is a false choice. Meaning it, it's not terrible to say, hey, our county or our state hasn't opened yet. If, if we open, does, it, you know, does that build enmity with the community? And then if we, you know, if, if one or two elderly come and get sick, what does that look like for our credibility if it's all over the nightly news? I don't think it's, I think it's wise to consider those things. But you can't be a slave to public opinion either, okay? This has to be on a case-by-case -case basis, not a principle. Because the time will, will soon come, if it's not already here, that really anything you have to say other than you're perfectly fine the way you are, live the way you want, and don't have to repent for your sins is not going to be popular in your community. So you cannot be a slave to public opinion. You can't be ignorant of it, but you can't be a slave to it either. Christ doesn't promote a spirit of defiance. That's, that's the other guy. The other guy does that, okay? He promotes justice. It's just that his definition of justice is often different from the world's, which is why the church has historically had to defy the state so often. Not for the sake of rebellion or vo populi, power to the people, but to oppose state-imposed injustice. Therefore, if the purpose of your defiance isn't to oppose injustice, it's just defiance. Okay? Meaning that if your liberty is not being, un, as, as, a, as a pastor, as a ministry, is not being unfairly imposed upon, then the only point of your defiance is a spirit of defiance. We defy because of injustice, not because of rebellion. If this sounds like there's no one-size-fits-all, it's because there's not. In church history, in the research I've done, there have been moments we stayed open during pandemics, and there have been times that we have closed during plagues. The early church risked its life to meet in person. That's true. But if they could do so virtually, would they still have? Maybe some of them wouldn't. Maybe most of them would. Some of them wouldn't. We don't know. On the other hand, though, we are the hands and feet of the gospel, not its keyboard and mouse. 
Nothing is, there's no substitute. None. God sent stone tablets, sent prophets. Ultimately, ultimately understood it was going to take putting himself in human form to truly, to truly be Emmanuel. That we could touch the hem of his garment. We could dine with him. That we would be his people and he would be our God. In the flesh. In the real. And that's why we've had apostles and church authorities from the very beginning. Because we need that. We need that connection. There is no substitute for the person-to-person contact, prayer, preaching, sacrament. No substitute for that. And there's not supposed to be. We're made of flesh and bone. So we desire and need that connection. In conclusion, you're not necessarily a wimp if you're still being cautious as a ministry by remaining closed at the moment. But you are being one if you're not prioritizing moving towards a definitive timetable to serve your flock and community as you were called as soon as it's possible. That is the best answer I can give to all of the emails I am getting about this. Todd and Aaron, your thoughts. Uh, My priest sent out an interesting video message after the governor of Iowa said churches could open. And he taught, this is a a priest, I've uh, tweeted out his uh, Easter uh, homilies to you before. He's a brilliant, brilliant homilist. But he talked mostly and he's, you can tell he's tired. He talked mostly about pragmatic concerns about the difficulty of opening up from cleaning to if you do spacing properly, they would have to have a number of masses that they just don't have. They can't they can't meet that need not knowing how long into the future they have to do that. Oh, I, I while I do have sympathy uh, for much of that, ultimately, as Steve talks about, motivations are important. It, if we're not going to open up, and this goes along the lines of there's no one-size-fits-all, but the motivations must be more than pragmatic concerns from the point of the church, because the point of the church isn't ultimately uh, pragmatic mm-hmm. uh, uh, concerns. That closing should focus on what the austereness of missing out on Mass, and as a Catholic, we have needs regarding the, what we believe to be the sacramental economy, the lack of access to the Eucharist and confession that are different concerns uh, than uh, most Protestants. But if we're, if we're not going to have those, how can we grow spiritually because of this lack? How can we turn this into a long Lent? I mean, we were kind of, we were speaking about this when it was actually Lent, uh, Steve, you mentioned that multiple times on this show. How do we keep feeding that hunger that we learned from Lent? The Mass, we take away, we don't say Alleluia. We do not say the word during Lent. We do not sing the Gloria, which we view as the song of heaven. We pull that back. How can we continue to grow spiritually by the lack? And that's what we need to focus on instead of turning into turning to desperation for getting back. And I say that as a Catholic. I, I, we need to, our, 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 our desire to go back should not be fueled by the same panic, panic 
that put this here in the first place. Aaron, you can see, I think that's well said, Todd. I, you can see my the point of my whole conversation is for a, both sides of this argument to check all of their motivations. Yes. Right? I'm just questioning yes. everybody's motivations, right? Yes, and that's what you have to do. And that's, I mean, that's, that's another day that ends in why that's Tuesday in the Christian life and the Christian walk, isn't it? It's checking your checking your motivations every step of the way. And there are there are so many things. There are so many things that uh, have to be considered here. It's it's not I I, I want to say this at the outset as well. Um I don't envy people sitting on the boards of their church right now. I've got a buddy of mine who's an elder at his church, and uh, don't envy don't envy the position that they are in right now. Uh, so I'll say that at the outset. I'll also say this: anytime where there is any room, any question, in a matter of conscience, then you need to have and allow for a lot of grace. So that's another thing as well. I don't believe, at least where I am right now, that churches should remain closed. I'm not privy to all the details that go into making a service happen, making multiple services happen. So I, I, I allow for grace uh, with where that's concerned as well. But for the people, and I'm one of these people, I think I'm even more of this way than you are, Steve. Mm-hmm. I, I believe... I, I believe that there is sometimes an overemphasis on the meeting together. This is a box that I'm going to check. I'm going to go to church, and so the the, the whole notion of well, the church isn't the actual building. I, I'm you know I'm I'm cognizant of that, and I I even think I take it to an extent uh, more so than than some. However, if you're going to say that, then as well. Uh, the natural conclusion of that is that the church is supposed to be taking place outside of the walls of the actual church building. What does that look like? It sure as hell does not look like you just sitting at home cowering. So for those saying, and I'm not saying cowering, whatever, sitting at home doing nothing, let's say that. So I understand the argument. Uh, the church is more than just the the, the building. I, I get that. But church also is more than staying at home. If that's going to be your argument, then you also have to grapple with these things as well. What are you doing to serve your community, to serve your flock right now? What can you do because of all of the closing downs? This is hampering so many so many tentacles of Christian ministry all the way around. It's not just the meeting together on Sunday mornings. If it's if it's hampering, if it's not hampering those external ministries, those outward ministries that the church does, if it's not hampering those, then why can't we meet in the church? Mm-hmm. And if we can't meet in the church, are we allowed to actually? Can we actually do our jobs outside of the church? If that makes sense, this this cuts both ways. So again, this is all about, I believe, your motivations. If you're motivated by fear, if you're motivated only by maybe a misinterpretation about Romans 13, it's time to maybe recheck those motivations. If you can have a church service and you can reasonably plan out some form of social distancing, what what have you, if you can reasonably plan out things, don't have a meet and greet handshake time, maybe donuts don't go maybe donuts aren't a, aren't a thing for a while at church. If you can plan out some reasonable things like that, there's there's really no reason. I don't believe at this point that you should not be working towards very soon. And I mean like in a matter of weeks, reopening your doors for 
for for meeting together again. I, and I want to I want to ask this as well. I don't know if you guys are singers at church very much. When was the last time you actually sang? Yeah, I, I got to tell you, I'll, I'll confess that I don't even watch the worship part of our online service. It's it's sterile, and I just yeah, I just wait until it's done and then join for the message. Yeah. Those are, can be some of the most. I don't know if it's the same way for you, Todd. I mean, you just you just mentioned some elements of your liturgy and in the Catholic Church. Those can be some of the most stirring, positively stirring yeah. moments of worship, of, of yep. corporate worship. And we're told to to, to sing psalms and hymns together. Uh, and we're not doing that right now. We're yeah. just not. I'll say this. If, if I were a pastor, my church would be open. If our church was open this Sunday, our whole family would go without hesitation, provided not knowing, of course, what the capacity rules and social distancing rules would be. But if if um, we would do our best to go in, in accommodation of that without hesitation. And if I were a pastor, our church would be open. Uh, you know, so, but I'm not. And those aren't my decisions to make. So, since but since many of you have asked, and I'm in the same boat as a lot of you, waiting for a church, my church to reopen. That's the best. That's the that's the best take on this debate I can give you. We'll come back and uh, play along with three non-political questions next. So here's something you might not know about your dog's food, that dry kibble stuff. Well, there's there's nothing alive in it. Food like that has to have a long shelf life, so the manufacturers sterilize it. The result is that your dog isn't getting all the nutrients it needs to live a happy, healthy life. Well, that's where Rough Greens VitaSmart comes from, a premium dog food supplement that isn't a dog food. It's a powder that you sprinkle on your dog's food, and apparently it tastes great because our dog, Cap, absolutely loves it. Rough Greens contains a massive amount of vitamins, minerals, digestive enzymes, probiotics, even omega oils and antioxidants that support healthy skin and healthy coat, plus improve your digestion. So give your dog their youthful energy back, improve their mobility and joint health as well. Take the Rough Greens 14-Day Jumpstart Challenge today for just $14.95 and see the difference in your dog in 14 days or less. Here's how. If you want to see your dog thrive again, go to roughgreens.com slash blaze. Rough Greens is spelled R-U-F-F for roughgreens.com slash blaze. Roughgreens.com slash blaze. Let's get to three non-political questions. We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? Question of destiny. Some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on the Steve Day Show. Yes, we need a little break from coronavirus, but not yet. I'm reading the store in the Daily Mail. Did you guys see this? A French delegation competing at the World Military Games in Wuhan in October said they came home with fever. Uh, One of their members actually was confirmed to have the virus a little bit later. So that's cool. You don't say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Question number one. What's on your Mount Rushmore of summer activities? And be specific. I don't want to, I don't want anything like uh, being outside. Give me some specific activities that you love doing. 
Uh, I mean, I love going to the movies. For the big summer event films. I love it. I love going. That's not a, well, that's that's an all year round event for you. Yeah, but I mean, that's the, t- the, the, the a lot of the big tent pole, you know, uh, franchises come out in the summertime, you know? So we, I love doing that. I love going out in the heat early and then uh, going into the dark AC and then coming back out in the heat. I just, I love that. That just, you know, that's a big thing. I like doing that. Um, I love, I'm starting to love lawn work. Just the, and Noah cannot know this, okay? Because I've I got to get him out there and, and to learn how to do this. It's just part of being a boy. But I, I'm really enjoying the, the solitude, you know, get out there in the sun for an hour or two. With the mowing, you know, listening to some podcasts and stuff. Uh, maybe it, that's a sign of getting old. But when he was little, I'm like, I cannot wait till he's like 12 or 13. I'm not doing this anymore. And now that he's 13, I'm like, I don't know if I want to give this up, you know? So uh, that would be part of it. Um, I mean, I love grilling out. That's, if that, grilling is not on your Mount Rushmore, yeah. that's a dude code violation. Yeah, that, that's that's an obvious one. That's an obvious one. And then one of the things I love about summertime, um, too, is the anticipation for fall and football season. Yeah. And late at night, you know, just like watching old games and stuff on YouTube or mm-hmm. uh, or when the, when the rosters get updated on NCAA football 2014 and playing that out i like i like just doing that at like midnight one o'clock in the morning i like doing that too todd is broken for some reason the summer list it's so dacian it's the most dacian thing ever half the list is indoors <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and when he goes outside it's just like an outside man cave i like the solitude i like being alone and no one's there that's awesome that's you like being out so you can go back in again basically <laughs> I don't want to do farmers markets. I'm not going to the fair. What else? It's Iowa. We don't have beaches, you know. What I else? drove by a beach mm-hmm. the other day, yeah. Raccoon River Park. Oh, that yeah. place is nasty. Yeah, exactly. We don't like the. It's not like the oceans here. We have a cool little amusement park, Adventureland, but it's not like we have like, and we had like Disney or something here. I'd go to that that all the time, you know. But there's there's really not that much else to do unless you like camping, and I don't. So that's a that's a no. Todd. Uh, camping, grilling. There are beaches. Camping is number one. We go. Uh, be, then going to the beach is fun, or the or, or the pool. Um, taking uh, the uh, girls to uh, their various uh, soccer camps. Those road trips. Uh, yeah, outside, sweating. Yeah, it's great. Very good. Uh, uh, for me, it's grilling. That has to be on the. That has to be on the list. Uh, any. Uh, any specific out, outdoor activity. I would say flying because you're able to do that a little bit uh, easier in the summer. Uh, I would say also, whenever it is that Last Chance you comes out, that's a fun summer activity. Oh, yeah. Really, really. Late re- July. What's your appetite yep. for uh, 
what's your appetite for college football? And then uh, we got it, a shout out on, on I got a shout out on last oh, chance right. you last I season. I remember I, I had a, a slight little cam, or small little cameo appearance. Yeah. I didn't watch it the opening weekend. It yeah. came out last you and Kurt. And then my phone just blew up uh-huh. and had a clip of uh, Schilling and I's uh, old sports show. Yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. That was cool. Uh, the other thing I love Independence Day. That's uh, that's the funnest part. Uh, question number two. I love MLB the show. I love playing that in the summertime. I love that. Are you are you trying to trigger Todd? I'm beginning to think that's true. Uh, question two. When was the last time you tried something new? The last time I tried something new. Um. Well, I'm gonna let you take this one first. Last time I tried something new. I must have tried something new here during... That's what I'm thinking. There's got to be something I've done new during... Lockdown. Yeah. I tried not having my... You know what? Here's what it is. I tried not having my uh, uh, annual NCAA tournament uh, vacation, which I've been taking literally since the sixth grade. All right? So I tried not... That was the last thing I tried new. I tried not having that this year. Tried it. Didn't care much for it, by the way, but I tried it. That's that's the most recent new thing I've tried. <laughs> right before the weekend before the quarantine really set in, went out for a Friday night fish, and my oldest daughter, my wife, loves sushi, and I have a I had a really bad experience with shellfish with shrimp back in college, and I didn't really like have any desire to eat it back then i love shrimp but i i wish i did now but i'm very clear i won't eat shrimp but like with sushi i i I try to keep pushing the envelope because it so yeah just that right before quarantine i i had some brand of sushi with an exotic level of seafood in it that i just needed to jump in and do it so i think that's that's pretty recent that's very nice iowa is known for its seafood um i would say for me that the the latest thing that i've been trying new is uh dancing because are you serious yeah when my uh when my wife and i have our um our our wedding and proper and our our um uh what is it the thing after the reception the thing after the wedding uh reception um we're gonna have to dance she likes to dance she loves to dance and I'm not a dancer, in case you were wondering about that. Could you tell I'm not a dancer very much? I think we profiled that right away. But I, Todd, uh, you? Yeah. But I'm learning. I'm learning some dances. I'm learning some dances. And it's it's a long slog, but it's happening. What, what dances are you learning, man? Uh, Cotton Eye Joe. Cotton Eye Joe. YMCA. YMCA. Oh, that's, that's easy. Um, uh, that's not dancing. Macarena. Uh, that. Uh, that one right so there. So just cheesy wedding reception songs. Cheesy yeah, wedding reception songs? Yeah. You what are to, you calling cheesy? She loves these songs. Yeah, you they're all to, cheesy. No, they're not. They're yeah. amazing songs. Can you mash potatoes? <laughs> What's a mashed potato? I, I have no idea. I just remember that line from a song. <laughs> what kind <laughs> of dancing leash are you on over there? Uh, a dancing leash? Yeah. Apparently, you apparently. Don't have, you don't have to love those songs. There's apparently no somebody. Apparently, somebody does put baby in a corner, <laughs> after all. No, all I right? think our first dance is going to be... Uh, uh, whatever the one uh, been a long time. Uh, it's been a long time. You know the song at the end of Endgame. That's going to be our first dance. So that one's just easy. You sway around, but that's it's coming along. That's all I can say. Tr- Question, can you remember, hold on a second. Can you remember three. the last time you danced? It would have been at some wedding I was at. I mean, it was at 
I can't picture either of you uh, dancing, my, yeah. and I'm glad no, I, about no, that. No, yes, I can. No, it would have been last, uh, not this Valentine's Day. This is the first one we never went to the daddy-daughter dance, and I used to be like the legend there because I'd show up with four girls, and one was like a baby in my arm. I, honestly, people, I signed autographs. It was amazing. <laughs> um, uh, but what? it would have been not this last February, but the February previous, uh, 2019. I danced then with my girls. That. The last time I did it was the last time that one of my girls went to a daddy-daughter dance. And that, I mean, would have been Zoe at a young age. And she's going to be 15 in July. So nine or 10 years is the last time. Yeah, my youngest is nine now. And so I did it when she was eight. Yeah. It's been a while. Oh, mercy. I can't picture either of you guys dancing, and I'm, I'm happy about that. Uh, question three, if you were forced to get plastic surgery somewhere, where would you get it and why? What kind of question is that? Exactly. I, I, I... Did you ask this because of that weird chick with the big lips that I keep seeing on Twitter? No, but that could have been my subconscious coming oh. out. Uh, I, I, I have... I just asked this question to get this reaction out of you guys. Yeah, I... I... You got to answer it. Them's the rules. Um, it's a do code violation to get plastic surgery. That's see, exactly that's, right. I, and, see, unless that's, it's to call. Hey, if if I if I had burns from uh, brave military duty, right? Then yeah, I, I, you can't do it out of pure vanity. Is no, what you're saying no, you can. I mean, if you gave a part of yourself to a worthy cause, yes. Then I mean, this is your recompense. You're owed this. Yes. You're, you're being made whole again, right? Yes. But if this is just some kind of vanity upgrade. I don't think the dude code allows that, does it? No. You know? So that's my answer. Uh, I, I, the dude code says no. I have to abide. You were forced to get... The, the question was, you were forced to get plastic surgery. <sighs> no answer? I don't, no comprendo? The Kobayashi Maru vanity project? Yep. That's what we're my, doing? My head, my, what, give me examples. Like, I'm not even sure, uh, do, like, other than breast augmentation, I, I don't even know, see, and collagen injections and lips, I don't even know what other plastic surgery there is. I don't know. You could get, uh, I think that they have wrinkle things. Uh, Joe Biden has a lot of that. Uh, what, what What is that called? So like, iron your face? <laughs> His face is looking tight, man. Mm. I mean, that, that face is wound tight. Biden's face, it looks like it's going to pop. His face is wound so tight. Um... Are you going to answer this if I do? Probably not. All right, then I'm not going to then. Okay, I'm, I'm not, not going on to. I'm not going on to that limb. Yeah. yeah. That's uh, a that's trick it. question. He, you, look what you were trying to corner us into there, McIntyre. Yeah, see, well, I mean, you both violated the uh, the rules, which is a dude code in and of itself. So, I mean, I'm the, the rules of three questions, you got to answer the question. So, um, sorry. Yeah, but this I'm goes to the conversation that. we just had with Romans 13. There's mm. a higher law, all right? If your question violates the dude code, the dude code is transcendent. I have to honor the dude code. So, so, I mean, this is this is frankly not answering your question as a form of civil disobedience. I'm I'm Shelley freaking Luther right now. All right. This question's a win, though. It's ultimately a victory because anytime you ask a question that it ends up us talking about the various permutations of the dude code, that's that's a win. Speaking of the dude code, yes. Did you see what uh, What's Her Face made uh, Prince? I think it was Prince Harry. Yes. Do? Oh, holy cow! I, my wife. What I is up her because she's into the royals. So if I see something, did you hear this? And she's like, that, I mean, come on. She's just uh, 
how can you be that emasculated? He the, had he has a collection. That's why I have no sympathy. Oh no! Oh no! No! Oh, nor should no. you. Yep. But what on earth? I mean, he's what? a military veteran who had yeah. a collection yeah. of guns. Yeah. And uh, she, what is it, Middleton uh, or whatever, whatever her no, name is? No, don't sully her. She's the good. She's the good one. I don't, I don't know their names. Yeah, the American chick. On purpose. The American chick that uh, that he married was Meghan like, Markle. Meghan Markle. Jezebel. Thank you. Yeah, Jezebel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. She made made him uh, get rid of all those guns because it made her feel uncomfortable. Something tells me maybe Especially they should have had these conversations. Royal. The dude is a royal man. He could literally just w- w- walk down to Piccadilly Square and just start, you know, I'll take that one and that one. I mean, come on, man. So I have even less sympathy. Yeah. It, it's one thing if you are like, you know, you work, you work next to Stapler guy in his cubicle and you landed, you know, a smoke show way above your weight. The dude code gives you some accommodation for getting whipped in that circumstance, realizing that, I mean, you're way over your skis here. You know what I'm saying? But, but even it, then, even then at some point, you have, to, you have to man up and draw a line. You're a member of the royal freaking family. Like, you're just literally just drawing names at that point. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, and, and so if, if you're going to allow yourself to get emasculated at that level, I have negative integer sympathy for you. In fact, I don't blame her at all. I I solely blame him. Solely blame him for permitting that. And it's not even like, I had no idea what a Meghan Markle was before all this. I mean, you're doing this for like the Kathy Griffin equivalent of Hollywood. Could you at least be whipped by like one of our A-list stars or something? Come on, this is... I mean, led America, uh, we have a better brand of America to seduce you with, Prince Harry. This is weak sauce. Isn't this the, the same couple who said that they were not going to move into the United States until Donald Trump was gone and they announced like two or three I, days I ago they go to the Los Angeles. They're moving I, to Los Angeles. So I have that's no cool. That's, that's a tale as old as time. I take pride in not knowing a damn thing about the royal family. I go out of my way to know nothing. Nothing. Out of my way. I just, I take, I view it as, as my, my civic obligation as an American to not care. I'm sure some of them are swell. That's great. I don't care. Do you care care, though? I don't, I don't care. You don't care. I don't. I didn't even know her name. Seriously. I didn't know her name. You mentioned another name. I, I can't remember. Kate. I don't know. I don't know who that is. Who is that? Kate Middleton is Prince what uh williams charming oh and she is she's quite uh lovely and charming and you know knows her role stays in her lane and understands what she married into and isn't trying to destroy it you already told me more than i wanted to know thanks now now you know all right we're gonna stick around you guys keep emailing me about this documentary plandemic i'm going to watch it in real time in the overtime for our blaze tv subscribers for the rest of you see you tomorrow until then john 317 This is Steve Dace on the Blaze Radio Network.